Morning, everybody. I hope you have your Bibles with you this morning. And if you do, please turn in them with me to Acts chapter 3. And if you don't have them, please uh, grab the Pew Bible in front of you and open it up to that text. Acts chapter 3. This weekend, we have been looking at fundamental challenges to the mission of the church in the modern world. And we looked at the challenge that's revolving these days around how to study the Bible, how to understand the Bible, and tried to suggest that we have to resist the tendency to locate the meaning of the Bible in anything or any place other than the original intention of the Bible itself. That sounds pretty simple, but we tried to show that the great movement in history has been always to try to find the meaning of the Bible behind the Bible or underneath the Bible or around the Bible or someplace other than in the Bible. And that there's always been a move then towards some kind of allegorical method to say that the literal meaning of the text can't really be what the text is about, but there has to be a deeper spiritual meaning that either the church will tell us or our own minds will tell us or in the modern, postmodern world, ourselves will tell us, our own just simple emotional intellectual, cognitive responses to life, that the meaning of the text now resides within us. And we become then the arbiters or the determiners or the locus of meaning. And we try to say, we can't escape, we ought not to escape the text. We can't expect the church to tell us what the Bible means. We should not think that there's a universal hidden meaning behind the text in our minds or even in our hearts but we have to become prisoners to the text itself. Last night, then, we looked at the second major challenge facing missions today, and that is, how do we understand world religions? The competing truth claims of other religions these days. And we try to suggest that we can't be pluralists, we can't be inclusivists, but we have to maintain the exclusive claims of Christ to be the only way to salvation. And this morning what I'd like to do then is build the biblical foundation for my response to those first two questions by looking at Acts 3 and 4. We'll look at the first part of it in Sunday school this morning and the second part of it in the sermon. And the reason I picked Acts 3 and 4, of course, is because of that climactic declaration in Acts 4.12. There is salvation in no one else because there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And my goal is a simple one, to try to put Acts 4.12 in its historical context, to understand Acts 4.12 in the context in which we find it, which is the argument and the events of chapters 3 and 4. And the reason why I think, actually it's more precise than that actually, it's 3.1 to 4.22. And the reason why I think Acts 3.1 to chapter 4.22 is the context for understanding Acts 4.12 is because if you look with me at Acts 4.9 we can see that Acts 4.12 is part of the Apostle's speech here in which Peter is declaring his explanation for why they did what they just did which was to heal this crippled man. Verse 9 says, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a cripple, by what means this man has been healed, 
be it known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, but which has become the head of the corner. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So 4.12 is part of this important response by Peter to why they healed the crippled man. And when you keep going in the text, you'll see that the passage concludes down in 4.21 and 4.22 when after they realized the apostles weren't going to stop preaching, it says, when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all men praised God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So 4.12 finds its context in the healing of this crippled man, right before it and right after it. So we've got to understand what happened in the healing of the crippled man if we're going to understand 4.12. And that's what takes me back then to three, chapter 3, verse 1, because that's where the story of the healing of this lame man begins. And so 4.22, for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old, takes us back to 3.1. And that's the larger unit or context in which 4.12 resides. So just doing that is one of the ways that I like to reaffirm what I said on Friday night. That the meaning of the text isn't in what I think about the text, or what the church thinks about the text, or what philosophers or psychologists think about the text. The meaning of the text is in what Luke intended when he penned Acts 4.12, recording Peter's speech in the context in which he gave it. In other words, we've got to go back to context. Context is king. A week in college where I teach, my primary purpose in life really is a very simple one. It's nice to have a nice, easy job description. You know what to do every day when you get out of bed. Mine is very simple. Try to do whatever I can to help students learn that in reading the Bible, context is king. And then help them get some of the tools they need to discover that context historically and personally, so that they can simply understand what the Bible itself is saying once we understand its own literary historical context. So that's what Sunday School is about this morning. It's about the context of Acts 4.12. Why is it that Peter and John declared the name of Jesus? Why would they not stop declaring it, even from a jail cell? Peter's defense of their proclamation of the gospel, no matter what, is 4.12. But the context of 4.12 is the healing of the crippled man. So let's go back then and see what happened. And we'll just go through the text section by section and make some comments about it as we go. It begins in chapter 3, as we know. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried whom they laid daily at that gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of those who entered the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked for alms. And Peter directed his gaze in him with John and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention upon them, expecting to receive something from them, naturally some money. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but I give you what I do have. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, 
walk. Of course, we're already thinking 4.12, aren't we? There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which they must be saved. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. We don't usually put 4.12, this key missions text, we usually don't put it in its context. But when you put it in its context, you've got to relate 4.12 to 3.6. Peter can say there's no other name under heaven given among men by which he must, we must be saved because he sees Jesus acting and he acts in the name of Jesus everywhere he goes and every, in everything he does. And that's what he gives to this man. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping, he stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. The lame man wanted money to help him live with his handicap. Peter and James gave him new legs in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, 3.6. I'm sure we probably remember this, but in the Bible, when we talk about the name of somebody, like the name of Jesus, we're talking about their identity and their character. In other words, the healing of the man's feet, the strengthening of his ankles, demonstrates that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. The Christ. When I first became a Christian, not having been raised in a strong Christian background at all, I thought Christ was his last name. You know, Fred Schwartz, Jesus Christ. I mean, all the Christians I ever knew said Jesus Christ. It was his last name. It was, I don't know how long, maybe a few weeks before I realized, oh, it's his title. And it only became used as a name because of the repetitive with which the early Christians made this most foundational declaration. Jesus is the Christ. And of course, you know, in Hebrew and Aramaic, you don't have to say the word is when it's there. If you want to say, I am tall, you can just say, I tall. If you want to say, she is fast, you can say, she fast. You know, if, if, if the verb to be is obvious, you don't have to say it. Why waste time and space and energy, breath? Life is short. Life short. So, they just said over and over again, of course, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Christ. It's a sentence, not a name. Jesus is the Messiah, the King of Israel. And, of course, they knew that meant the Lord of the nations. Because God established His kingdom in the midst of Israel in order to rule and reign from Israel throughout the world in fulfillment, ultimately, of the divine mandate given to Adam and Eve way back in the garden to exercise God's dominion to the ends of the earth as His vice-regents. So the kingdom of God is established when the Messiah, God's King, rules and reigns in Israel, and then, of course, from Israel and through Israel to the ends of the earth. Jesus is that Messianic King. He's the Messiah, right? Messiah just means anointed one. So literally, they were saying Jesus is the anointed one. And the Hebrew word for anointed is Mashiach. And Messiah becomes Christ because the Greek word for anointed is Creo, from which you get then Christ the Anointed One. So really it's three languages. We're three languages away. I mean, Aramaic, Mashiach became Christos in Greek, which became Christ in English. But just to remember and to remind ourselves that when we say Jesus Christ, we're saying 
King of Israel, Lord of the nations. That's his identity. That's the character of the one who strengthened this man's ankles. Because as the Lord of life, the King of Israel, the Lord of the nations, He has the divine authority to meet the needs of His people as He so designs. And so as a result, the reality and the glory of God, because the Messiah is always the Son of God, He is ruling and reigning in God's stead, manifesting God's sovereignty. Jesus is representing God the Father, of course, in all that He does. As a result then, did you see what happens? The reality of the glory of God was made known through Jesus from Nazareth. Hence, what does the lame man do in verse 8? It's the name of Jesus that heals him, but he praises God. You see that? In the name of Jesus, the Messiah of Nazareth, walk. He's the embodiment, the declaration, the reality of the kingship of God. He's the King of Israel and the Lord of the nations. In His name and character, walk. And when the guy walks, he praises God. This link between the activity of Jesus and the praise of God is essential in this text. It's essential for missions. The point is simple, isn't it? By acting in the name of Jesus, the disciples are honoring the one true God. So that in response to what Jesus does, we praise God. The link again, the identity between Jesus and God is absolutely essential and fundamental. It's an amazing thing. The reflex was, Jesus acts, praise God. And it wasn't long before they realized it was because, of course, Jesus is more than the normal son of David, the normal son of God, which was, remember, originally a title for the kings of Israel because all the kings of Israel were the sons of God since they represented their heavenly father and they didn't rule and reign in their own stead. They rule and reign as representing the father. So the kings of Israel were called the sons of God. And that was both a title of honor. You get to represent God. You get to be king in his name. But it was also a title of humility. Don't ever think you're top dog. You're always and only the son. In Egypt, the pharaohs became the gods. In Israel's history, they remained the sons of God. Jesus, when he was first proclaimed, of course, on the dusty streets of Israel as the Son of God, would have been understood to be saying that he was the King of Israel. We know, by the time we get to the end of the story, that he is much more, however, than just an earthly Davidic descendant. The link between Jesus and the Father is essential because when you encounter Jesus, you are encountering God Himself, aren't you? So, this text, for those who have the bird's eye view of knowing the end from the beginning, when we see this lame man now, formerly lame man, praising God because of who Jesus is, we say to ourselves, you ain't seen nothing yet. This Jesus is much more than just the Messiah of Israel and the Lord of the nations. He's the Messiah of Israel and the Lord of the nations because He is in fact God's Son, capital S, and not simply God's Son, small s. He's the Son of God, King of Israel, Lord of the nations, but He's also the Son of God, God Himself. So, that's the first point. This essential link between Jesus and God. And this is so important in our day and age. Because remember last night, we tried to say that we must resist the temptation to think that Jesus is just one more of many valid ways to God. That's not what's being said here. What's being said here is the opposite. 
Jesus acts, you praise God. And eventually we will declare, Jesus acts, you've seen God in action. The disciples' response to the needs of the lame man was not, even though he was a Jew, hey, whatever feels good to you religiously, do that, brother. You're a Jew. Be a good Jew. Go back and think more carefully about what it means to be a son of Abraham. That's what naturally feels good to you religiously. Just do that. Nope, they didn't do that at all, did they? They said instead, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Even for the Jews of the first century, Jesus was not just one of many religious options. To proclaim Jesus was to reveal God. Jesus acts to the praise of the Father. Indeed, Jesus acts because He is one with the Father. Thus, now that Jesus had come, the apostles, though they too were Jews, were acting in the name of Jesus because it was His name. That is, the character and identity of the One who embodied and reveals the God of Israel. The One created and Redeemer. It was His name now where you encountered God. And I think it's so important for us to see in our day and age that from the very beginning of the Jesus movement, which they called the Way, remember? That was the first name for us. We were people of the Way. Why? Because Jesus was the Way. Not a way. The Way to the Father. From the very beginning, as the Messiah of Israel, who had to be therefore the Lord of the nations, Jesus was never viewed, never viewed, as just one option alongside of Judaism. I mean, I know Jesus is kind of controversial, you know, and if it's sort of uncomfortable for you, you know, you're a Jew already. You're a, you're a son of Abraham. Just go back and be a good Jew. I mean, it's kind of difficult out here to follow Jesus. You can get arrested and thrown in jail. Don't do that. Moses for the Jews. Jesus for the Gentiles. And we apostles, we're just kind of the bridge figure and we're just trying to bring the message of Judaism to the Gentiles so that they can have a piece of what you already enjoy. So, you can just be a good Jew and we'll be the bridge to the Gentiles and they can become Christians and we'll, we'll just live happily together. Moses for the Jews, Jesus for the Gentiles. Very popular to say that today. But from the beginning, it was never Jesus is one option alongside of Judaism. It was always Jews for Jesus. Remember that? You know that organization? It was always from the beginning Jews for Jesus. There was no place else to go for eternal life there was no other name to proclaim for the salvation of others than the name of Jesus. Are we really convinced this is true? We talked about this last night. And my guess is that if we're honest with ourselves, when I'm honest with myself, there's curled around this pillar of truth sort of a weed. It's springtime, a lot of weeds coming up, curling around our rose bushes or whatever. This pillar of truth that Jesus is in fact the Messiah of Israel, the Lord of the nations, the one who reveals God, the one who is God. There's around this pillar of truth kind of a weed obscuring its significance, zapping its strength. It's this creeping feeling that we learn from the powerful pluralistic culture around us that the world just doesn't really need Jesus all that much. After all, isn't being a Christian like being religious in general just this kind of private, personal thing? I mean, it's good for those who know Jesus. You know, if He works for you, I'm happy for you. Kind of pat you on the head condescendingly, you know. If you need religion, I'm glad you've got it. And if Jesus works for you, that's nice, but I have my way and you have your way. 
Is Jesus really necessary? As long as people are learning what they can from life in their own way and in their own culture, as long as they're striving to be sincere and loving and tolerant of others, like we said last night, isn't religion really like a restaurant? I mean, we all have our favorite place to go. Some people like pizza. Other people like hamburgers. So in the end, isn't it just a matter of personal preference where you go to McDonald's or Pizza Hut down the road? As long as you don't starve, go someplace. But does it really matter which restaurant you go to? I think a lot of people think religion is like a restaurant. You choose according to your personal taste. And we saw last night that even many Christians today are advocating an inclusivism that argues that Christianity may be the best of all religions, but not the only true and sufficient religion. But that can't, I think, do justice to what they said about Jesus. He's the Christ. And to the way in which this lame man, now walking, responded. In light of what Jesus did, he praised God. And that link is crucial. Let's go on. Verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. They were astounded. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we had made him walk? I love that. Why are you looking at us like we did this? As though by our own power or piety we made him walk. The God of Abraham and of Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release Him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God has now raised from the dead. And to this we are witnesses. Remember I said last night, we're not salesmen, we're witnesses. We're simply proclaiming to others what we know God has done. They crucified Jesus, but God raised Him from the dead. And to this we are witnesses. Now here we go again. And His name. No, by faith in His name has made this man strong whom you see and know. No, and the faith which is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Notice the qualifications in this text. The crowd's all excited, of course, that these guys, quote-unquote, did a miracle. And so Peter's got to qualify it quickly in two ways. He's got to qualify it in verse 12, and he's got to qualify it in verse 16. The disciples are preaching Jesus as Lord because God Himself declared Jesus to be the Savior of the world when He raised Him from the dead. That's the sandwich in verses 13 to 15 between these two qualifications. So you get qualification number 1, verse 12. Then the testimony of the resurrection, verses 13 and 14 and 15. And then you have the second qualification in 16. So that the two qualifications are determined by the testimony of the resurrection. Everything we say or do rests on the resurrection. No resurrection, no Jesus movement. No resurrection, no way to the Father through Jesus. No resurrection, no one and only name, the name of Jesus. 
Because apart from the resurrection, the cross of Christ could mean only one thing. Jesus was dying as a messianic pretender for his own sins, cursed by God. Remember, that's what they thought they were saying when they crucified Jesus. He's not the Messiah. He's a fake and a fraud. And like all fakes and frauds, like all false prophets, Deuteronomy 21 is clear. Hang them publicly in front of all the people so that they will know that this man is not a prophet of God, but he's cursed by God. So they wanted Jesus crucified publicly to declare without a shadow of a doubt that he was a fake and a fraud, a messianic pretender. Far from blessed by God, he was cursed by God for his sin. That's why the resurrection is so important. What is the resurrection? It's God's stamp of approval on Jesus. It's His vindication of the claims of Jesus. When Jesus during His earthly ministry said in Mark 10.45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. That's why I'm going to the cross. To give my life as a ransom for many. To validate, to vindicate, to place His stamp of approval on that declaration. God raises the Son from the dead. That's Peter's point. You crucified Him, but God glorified Him. You killed Him as if He were a murderer. Murdering God's people by claiming to be a false prophet. Letting a murderer go in His place. You killed Him as if He were a murderer. And God raised Him from the dead. So who are you going to believe in the end? The message of the crucifixion as you interpret it? Or the message of the crucifixion as God interprets it in light of the resurrection. Because what does the resurrection say as God's vindication or stamp of approval? It says one simple thing. Jesus could not be dying for His own sin. Well, if Jesus is dying, cursed by God on the cross, but the declaration of the resurrection is He's not dying for His own sins, spiritual algebra, right? One plus one equals Two. And what's the two? He must be dying for us. It's the point you remember that Paul said he learned on the road to Damascus and he taught the Galatians in chapter 3 that Jesus was being cursed all right, but He wasn't being cursed for His own sins. He was being cursed for mine. How did I learn that on the road to Damascus? I saw the resurrected Jesus. And so I had cognitive dissonance. I had theological confusion because I was going to Damascus to kill Christians because they were part of a dangerous sect ruining the people of God. I was going there to get as many of them arrested and killed as I possibly could, thinking that they were a horrible heresy. And on the way, I met Jesus alive in His resurrected glory. And so I had to say, now wait a minute. How can the crucified one be the resurrected one? It must be that Jesus said that what Jesus said about Himself is true. He died on the cross all right, but not for his own sins, but for mine. But there's even more to it, isn't it? Isn't there? God's pledge and demonstration at the resurrection is a pledge and demonstration not just for Jesus, but for all of Jesus' followers. It's God's declaration in the midst of space and time that He will do for all of Jesus' followers what He's already done for Jesus. That the resurrection is the prelude of all of our futures. That having been forgiven by the death of Christ, we can be raised to new life with Christ. And I think that that's what this healing of the lame man is all about. 
It is a demonstration in advance of the healing that will come to all of us at the end of the age. God doesn't heal, of course, all of His people all of the time now. He heals some of His people some of the time now in order to continue to remind us of what He will do for all of us then. Giving us little signposts, little posters of the reality to come. And so the the raising of this lame man to new life, taking him off the floor so he can stand up, is a picture of the resurrection. And it's a pledge in advance, once again from God, that He will do for all of Jesus' people what He has done for Jesus. And so Peter is simply witnessing to the validity of Christ because of the resurrection of Christ. And in so doing, of course, also making the claim that the walking lame man is a glimpse of the healing to come for all of us. And that's why we've got to have the two qualifications. It's all about Jesus. Don't think it's a matter of our power or piety. Verse 12. Peter wants to make it clear that the healing of the lame man is not the expression of human activity in the sense that our piety has within it a religious power to bring about God's activity. The mere experience of religious faith is powerless in itself if it's not focused on the right object. People everywhere have faith in all kinds of things. Don't they? From the trinkets on their dashboards to lucky charms in their pockets to ancestors in their family to the gods of their religions. We are by nature dependent people. And we were created, therefore, to be reliant on something greater than ourselves, i.e. God Himself. However, minus the one true God, people don't stop having faith. They just place their faith in other second-rate objects. Everybody's living by faith in something, even if that something is, tragically, themselves. Even if they make themselves the God of their own future. So that they think their future is in their own activities as they employ them for themselves. And their religion becomes the American dream to live as long as you can, as healthy as you can, as wealthy as you can. And if that's, if that's your dream... And you're your God, so you're trying to do everything you can with your IRAs and your PQWs and your CNWs and whatever it all is. And you're trying to do whatever you can to have the right insurance and the right retirement plan and the right education and the right location and the right family structure so that you can live as long as you can, as healthy as you can, as wealthy as you can, and fulfill the American dream. So if that's your future, if that's your heaven, and you're your own God, you're not going to go to missions. Missions is not a recipe for living as long as you can, as healthy as you can, as wealthy as you can. I think of my former student, Dave Crayson, who went to Tashkent, Uzbekistan, where the life expectancy is about 48 years old, which is about how old I am. Because the water's bad, the air's bad, the food's bad, everything's bad. People just die young, 48. I remember the first time his wife was telling us, she's in Uzbek, telling us about her father, and she was saying, my father is so old. He's just so old and so feeble. Said, How old is your father? Fifty-five. Well, Dave's been there now living, I don't know, he's been there, what, 15 years or something? Dave's still a pretty young man in American standards. I think he's about 40, but if 
they were to come home on furlough to your church, you'd say, man, have you aged. Where's your hair? How come your skin is so taut and you're so kind of pale all the time? How come you're so skinny? You weren't so skinny when you left. That's what 15 years in Tashkent will do to you. And he's not coming home. He's just on vacation. Here he's going back there. So you intentionally go someplace where you know that the food and the water and the air is going to kill you sooner than if you stayed here? Not if retirement is your heaven and you are your own God. Right? But if heaven's your heaven and Jesus is your Lord, you might go to Tashkent. Because what God did for Jesus and raised Him from the dead is what God's going to do for David and for Ruza when He raises them from the dead. And that's their hope. That's amazing. But, Peter wants to make sure, therefore, that the people realize that everything hangs on the object of your faith and not on the having of the faith. I mean, obviously you've got to have faith. Everybody does. But the goal is to trust in the right person. Don't think it was our own power or piety that made this man walk. We didn't make him walk. Jesus made him walk. And we were just relying on Him. Remember the name? It wasn't my name. It wasn't Peter. In the name of Peter, rise up. It was in the name of Jesus. Faith is not the power of positive thinking. Faith is not a self-help strategy. Faith is not wishful thinking. It's not mind over matter. It's not trying to believe in something hard enough that it just might come true. You know that kind of stuff that's all over in our culture? You can do anything you want if you just set your mind to it. You just got to believe more. Try to believe hard enough in the hope that it will come true and dreams will come true. The most tragic thing is to believe hard your whole life in the wrong things. God in Christ is not merely an idea to be accepted. The power of faith is not in having faith itself. As if faith were a magical incantation. This is the problem with the health and wealth gospel. I saw a little bit of it last night. My wife sometimes gets upset with me because I watch these health and wealth gospel preachers on TV. I always want to know what they're up, up to because I run into the health and wealth gospel all over, even in evangelicalism. So I like to hear what they're up to. We've got it all the time, don't we? If you just trust God enough, you'll have a great family. So I'm trusting God and I'm having trouble with my children, so it must be I don't trust God enough. I'll tell you how to trust God more. Wednesday nights. Your problem is you're not coming to church on Wednesday nights. I mean, it's Sunday and Wednesday, and if you just come on Wednesday night, then God will save your children. Oh, did I mention it's Sunday, Wednesday, and missions weekend? Oh, I forgot. It's Sunday, Wednesday, missions weekend, and tithing. Oh, no, I know what it is. It's Sunday, Wednesday, Missions weekend, tithing, and lots of prayer. I mean, how many times have I heard people say, you know, I prayed for my children for 14 years and then God answered. And the implied message is, well, that's why, you know, you're only at year 12. You've got two more years to go. You know, as if, as if we're heard for our many words, as if prayer makes God a prisoner to our desires, as if faith is a magical incantation, as if we're in the driver's seat giving God His job description through our activities, as if we place God in our debt by the great things we do for Him. So yesterday on TV, the guy had a new one. It said, 
you know, a threefold cord is not easily broken. So there are three things you have to do. You have to fast, you have to pray, and you have to give money. Of course, it always ends up with giving money to us, right? How do you plant the seed? Give me your money. God hasn't blessed you yet because you haven't given enough money. The power of faith is not in having faith itself, as if it were a magical incantation. The power in prayer, the power in fasting, the power in giving is not in the activities themselves as if they were magical incantations. It's in the one trusted, manifested through those activities. The disciples did not have power in their faith. They had faith in the power of Christ. In healing the man, they were witnessing to the reality of Jesus, not expressing religious achievement. Boy, is that important for me. I somehow think that God's next great act in the world is going to be dependent on what I can do for Him rather than dependent on my dependence on Him working for me. What healed the man then was not their faith, but the resurrected Jesus to whom their faith witnessed. Yet, of course, faith is necessary, isn't it? You must have faith in Christ. It's the necessary response to the reality of who Jesus is. If He is the Messiah of Israel, if He is the Lord of the nations, we've got to trust Him. But that's why verse 16, the second qualification, is so important. And it's with this qualification that we'll end. Notice the second qualification. It wasn't our faith that healed Him, Jesus healed Him. But we have to have faith. And his name then, no, no, by faith in his name, has made this man whom you see and know strong. But notice how then he goes on to qualify. And the faith which is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. It's Jesus. No, no, it's faith in Jesus. No, no, it's Jesus who gives me the faith in Jesus. You see that qualification? Verse 16 makes it clear that even faith itself comes from Jesus. So that Jesus gets the credit even for our faith in Jesus through which He works. Dependence is the platform for the glory of God. The giver gets the glory. Our faith honors God because it shines the spotlight of attention not on ourselves, but on the One whom we're trusting. People who trust themselves honor themselves. People who trust Jesus honor Jesus. Faith is the flashlight of attention, if you will, on Him. And that's why faith is necessary for the blessings of God. You must trust in God to be saved. Because you must honor Him with your life. God does not share His glory with others. Trusting in God is the pathway to heaven. But it's trusting, of course, in God. It was faith. It was faith, Peter says. It was this name. No, no, it was faith in His name, 16a. It was this name. No, it was faith in His name. It was faith. It was our dependence on Jesus that healed this man. God in Christ rewards, though, what He Himself does in us. God gives what He demands. He grants what He calls for. So faith is not the act of a religious hero. According to verse 16, faith is itself the act of Jesus. It was His name. No, it was faith in His name that made this man strong. No, no. It was the faith which is through Jesus that has given the man this perfect health. 
So Jesus becomes both the source and object of our faith. And that's why this man was healed. Because we trusted in Jesus. But why did we trust in Jesus? Because Jesus Himself gave us the trust to trust in Jesus. The healing of the lame man and the faith of the disciples that brought it about are both the gifts of God. Salvation, therefore, is not the result of a religious impulse that can be found in the good and sincere hearts of people everywhere. Salvation is the raising to new life of those who are dead in their sins, hopeless and helpless without God invading their lives to bring them to trust in Him. Faith is not reaching up to God. Faith is our response of dependence to the God who has reached down to us. Verse 16 makes it clear that Jesus is the only Savior. Now we're back to 4.12. There is salvation in no one else. Why? Because He's the one who saves. Why is there salvation in no one else? Because He's also the one who gives us the faith to trust Him to save. Jesus healed him. But it was also Jesus who gave us the dependence on him that he might heal him. And in so doing, honor himself and not us. It wasn't our power and piety. It was our faith. And faith is dependence on God that comes about from God. Do you see how Jesus is on both ends of the equation? And we're in the middle? Jesus grants the faith. We exercise it in Jesus. And Jesus acts. And in so doing, we declare every day, that there is salvation in no one else because there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved since that name, the name of Jesus, Jesus Himself, as the Messiah of Israel and the Lord of Nations, is the one who both gives faith and rewards faith. So this would be my conclusion. Jesus is not the best option for those who have faith. He's the only one who can bring about faith itself. And the object of our faith is the same one who brings about the faith that we place in Him. So Jesus is the founder and perfecter of faith, Hebrews 12, 2 can say. Can say. Excuse me. So here's what I would conclude in terms of the questions we've been asking this weekend. Does this sound reasonable to you? Does this sound biblical to you? That Jesus would so work in the human heart, the hardened, sinful human heart, to bring about faith so that then we could exercise our faith in Buddha or Confucius or Mary Baker Eddy or Joseph Smith or Mohammed or Shirley MacLaine or the Dalai Lama or ourselves. Does that sound like it would work? That Jesus creates faith so that we can place our faith in someone else other than Him. I don't think so. It seems unlikely to say the least. And of course, it goes directly against the clear teaching of this text. That Jesus creates faith in the lives of His people that they might place their faith not in anyone else, not even in themselves, but in Him alone. And in so doing then, He will reward their faith ultimately with the resurrection from the dead. To which the healing of this lame man testified. Because it was His name, the name of Jesus. No, no. It was faith in His name. No, no. It was faith by means of His name that brought about this healing and will bring about all of our healing at the end of the age. Amen?